Welcome to the Grumpy Strategies podcast, episode nine. I'm here with Dr. Marcus Hellyer, SAA's head of research, and I'm Michael Shoebridge. Hello, Michael. All right, I'm going to jump in straight to the important stuff. So I've been contemplating retirement. I've done the numbers. The only way it's going to work is if we move a lot of SAA merch. So how is the merch plan going? There is a merch plan. I can't say too much in this forum yet, but I can say great things are afoot. Awesome. Uh, You should be thinking T-shirts, cups, caps. I think we are going to move a lot of coffee mugs. There's a lot of grumpy people out there, and grumpy people like coffee mugs. And as when they listen to our podcast, they get even grumpier. So it's a self-reinforcing business model. That's true, but I can't say too much. So we'll get into what the podcast is, is about now. We thought we'd cover three broad topics. So 2024, the year of elections, maybe something about money going into defence industry here in Australia, a fantastic report that we were a part of for a group of companies, the Strategic Australian Prime Alliance, which says it's possible for Australian industry to really meet a lot of our military's urgent needs, but that requires investment and a much better policy framework. So talk about the money a little bit and getting money into defence industry, and then finish up just with a little bit of a deeper dive into the proposed export control laws that we've talked about in a previous episode, but a bit more detail now in some of the case studies that will really help people to understand it. Okay, so busy agenda. Let's get into it. Now, I was at a conference last week and one of the presenters said next year more people will be voting in elections than in any other year in history. Quite a remarkable claim and also by a remarkable coincidence, it's an issue you've been looking at. So why don't you uh, tell us about some of the significant elections that are coming up next year and perhaps draw some some conclusions from what you think it means strategically. Well, thanks, Mark, because it is quite amazing, isn't it? More humans voting in 2024 in elections. So the fact that they are elections is a good thing. Well, that's good that democracy is not yet dead. Whether democracy will survive some of these elections is another question, but so far it's still going. Well, Vladimir Putin is going to have an election and I, I expect him to win again. Now, I was talking about democracy, Michael. I know, I was, just, I was just making the point that all of these voters are not all voting in democracies. So Vladimir Putin, I, I actually think he probably has genuine high public support because mm-hmm. of the total control of media and information by the Russian state mm-hmm. and his uh, sort of vision that Russia's the victim and everyone's got to get behind him to help the motherland. I think that actually is genuine well, inside the he, Russian population. I think he has tapped into something there. Yes. Yeah. But then talking about actual democratic elections, so I'll just give a, a quick list and then we can talk about some of the implications. So Taiwan has its presidential election in January, mm. then Indonesia in February, then uh, India in April, the Solomon Islands, so important for Australian policy mm, so and action in the South Pacific. in our neighbourhood. A lot in our neighbourhood. And then further afield, so the European Parliament, the EU, all of the members of the European Parliament, uh, there's an election for them in June 2024, and then it's the European Parliament that then votes for who the EU president and other seniors 
uh, like mm. Ursula von der Leyen. Uh, so all their jobs are up in the air depending on that outcome. Now, I would, I would have to say, based on some recent European elections where we have seen a, a shift to the populist right, particularly in the Netherlands, very recently, before that in Italy, mm. uh, are we likely to see something along those lines in the EU elections? Yes, I think we are. So there's a party that looks a lot like those parties you just mentioned, the one in the Netherlands, Italy, and Germany's alternative for Deutschland in the European Parliament already. It's a hard-right populist bunch called European Conservatives and Reformists. And it looks like they'll get a big chunk of the votes in the EU Parliament, you know, about a third. So they will have a big say in who gets the senior jobs, like who is mm. the president. And, and basically those kinds of parties and movements tend not to be terribly sympathetic to Ukraine and tend to be quite sympathetic towards Vladimir Putin. So are we likely to see a, a drying up of support for Ukraine? I think it would get a much more contested, fractured discussion in the EU because you're right, these parties, you know, they, they are quite nationalistic. Uh, they have an anti-woke agenda. Well, we're never quite sure what that means, but uh, they certainly have it. They um, might be able to ask Mr Dutton what that yep, means. Yep, anti-climate change, uh, relatively pro-authoritarians, uh, relatively pro-Putin, you're quite right. Uh, so think about the kind of discussions that are happening in the US Congress now about mm. Ukraine funding. And that is probably a pattern we're going to see across Europe. Mm, yeah. But one thing I would say is it's not all going one way in Europe. So, yes, the Netherlands uh, elected this fairly hard-right populist guy. But Poland, their recent election, did the opposite. They had a fairly populist hard-right bunch. Uh, that were already uh, making noises about helping Ukraine too much. And Poland has been essential in NATO for driving mm. support to mm. Ukraine. But that party just lost government and has been replaced by a more centrist, diverse coalition that is quite pro-Brussels. Because I didn't say the other pattern out of these populist parties is not only are they reasonably pro-Putin, they're fairly anti-Brussels. Though mm. so it's interesting to see a country that actually shares a long border with Mr. Putin is sort of moving against the, that general trend. Hmm. Yes, that's right. So, so it's not all one-way traffic. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, you look in our part of the world, the Taiwanese election, well, the front runner is the vice president of the current president, President Tsai Ing-wen, and that is pretty much a continuity policy agenda, walking that careful line of clear autonomy from Beijing, not signing up to unification because of the death of the one country, two systems model when Beijing mm -hmm. took over Hong Kong. And really, the population of Taiwan, I think, supports that agenda. They do not want unification with mainland China and certainly not on Beijing's terms. Mm. There, there was a possibility that the Taiwanese election got thrown up in the air when the opposition KMT party and the Taiwan People's Party, the two opponents to the ruling DPP formed a partnership, but the partnership lasted, I think, you know, a couple of weeks and just ended in complete chaos. So I think that's advantage the Vice President, William Lai. Uh, we'll see the results so, of that in January. So if I can sort of pull out some general trends here, uh, in Europe, we seem to 
be moving towards a more contested kind mm -hmm. of environment where there's a number of states uh, probably or have already or probably elect sort of populist governments that are uh, anti-Brussels, uh, anti-support for Ukraine. So mm -hmm. a, quite a fractured sort of yep. picture there. Yep. Closer to home, however, I think we are seeing sort of a shoring up of the, the balancing position of essentially rejecting Beijing's aggression or coercion and countries sort of working together to, to push back on that. Would yes. You, is that I, your assessment? It is. So I think Taiwan is an example of that. And uh, the other big example is the still relatively new government in the Philippines, uh, President Bongbong Marcos, who really has shifted away from Duterte's very pro-Beijing policies and uh, revitalised things like the Philippines' alliance with America, now starting joint military patrols with the Japanese, the US and Australia. So you're right, I think in our part of the world, it's a pretty positive shift. But of course, there's an election in the Solomons, April, expected April. Who knows if Mr Sogavare will actually have the election this time because he put it off for a year last time saying that they were having the Pacific Games. How could you possibly do two things in your country in it, one it, year? It's hard to walk and chew gum at the same time, Michael. Yeah, so he's got a lot of money behind him, a lot of Chinese money behind him, but there are 400,000 voters in 50 different constituencies across the Solomons, and the government that emerges out of all that is relatively unpredictable. So mm. it's not a shoe-in that Mr Sogavare gets returned. Well, I think simply managing that election, I think, will be a a good opportunity for Australia to demonstrate that it is a good friend of the Solomon Islands in managing the logistics of that very complex exercise. Well, and making sure it is a transparent and well-conducted electoral process, absolutely, because supporting Solomon's democracy rather than supporting any particular outcome is what Australia needs to do. Of course, if Mr Sogavare loses, I will be having a celebratory party. So, and then there's Indonesia, the Indonesian election, which hasn't got a lot of press in Australia. It's on the 14th of February. Um, to Jokowi, after um, a pretty successful tenure, can't run again. Uh, his, his party's candidate, Ganja Pranowo, has about 30% of the support at the moment in polling. The Defence Minister, Prabowo Subianto, who Australians know well and who has a pretty checkered, difficult past. He's the front runner. He's on about 39% support. So there could be various runoffs and vote-offs, but he looks like he could well be the next Indonesian president. But my understanding is he's currently not allowed to travel to the US. I think that's right. It's which a bit, could be a little awkward. Yes, but the same was true of Narendra Modi until he became the Indian mm -hmm. president mm -hmm. and then people found mm -hmm. a way. So I, th uh, I think it, it may be worth us having a, a podcast at some point on this issue of why, why is there so little coverage and knowledge of Indonesia in Australia? Mm. It's not a new topic, but um, I think it's an interesting one to look at. Well, we have these periodic things, don't we, where uh, Australian politicians and academics say, Indonesia is so vital for Australia's future. Why isn't it a deeper partnership? And then we just go to sleep and on then it again. Happens. Or there'll be a crisis relating to live cattle exports or something. And then, yeah. Yeah. But, but there's but, a lot of colour and movement in the Indonesian uh, election. So uh, Prabowo, he's 72, and he's got a 36-year-old vice presidential candidate who's, who's a mayor. So well, he's, he's appealing to the youth vote. 72 is quite young for some national leaders, Michael, which gets us to the really big one next year, which is the US Oh, election. yeah. There, there isn't a, a US election, isn't there, in November 2024. Mm. And one of the candidates might be campaigning from 
jail. We don't quite know yet. Uh, the really strange, one of the enormously strange things about America, and I, I admire American creativity, and I think America plays a positive role in the world, but there's a lot of craziness as well. You actually can, really? you can be elected the president of the United States of America while in jail. Really? Yes. There you go. Yes. So <laughs> there, uh, there, there could be another first next year. But it would be very interest, I'd be very interested to know, has there ever been a national election anywhere where the two candidates are as old as Mr Biden and Mr Trump? Probably in the communist world under the USSR where, you know, like people like Honecker in um, East Germany when they had their election that he magically won every time. Oh, he was good to know there's that some, was, that was some a, good precedence. That was the time of the gerontocracy, so yes. All right, so do you want to hazard a, a guess? So we have all of these elections. So by the end of 2024, will the world be a more stable place? Will it be a more unpredictable place? Or will it just be the interesting kind of place it already is in just different ways? Well, just on the politics and the elections, I think the absolute most likely outcome of all of this happening in 2024 is a more fractured, more fragmented globe uh, with less global co cooperation much more transactional states and leaders, and that means much less collective action. And that really matters for things like climate change, uh, I agree. And the yep. war in Ukraine, and in fact, a coherent collective policy towards an aggressive China. So on all of those things, this is going to be a more difficult environment. And that's without the unexpected things. Think about what happened this year, uh, the Israel-Hamas war. Think about what happened last year, the Ukraine war. Think about what happened before that, the pandemic. So this is just at the political level. I think there's going to be more fracturing, more local people for local issues, and much more transactional. And I think that makes it easier for autocracies to pick people off one by one. They love to play the divide and rule uh, strategy. That's what uh, the, the uh, CCP is really good at. It's what Putin's really good at. And so it, I think it makes the rest of the world more vulnerable. Yeah, you're right. I mean, collective action like the US and NATO and the EU supporting Ukraine, uh, that is disabled by the kind of division that I'm talking about. Collective action on climate change. Like, look at what's happening mm -hmm. at the COP conference right now. So, and even you know, think about the US elect election, more division inside America. So, right now, there's enormous division in the Democratic Party who support Biden or who may not support Biden. A whole bunch of normal Democratic Party voters are saying they're not going to vote for Biden because of what he's doing to support Israel. They're, mm -hmm. they're, they're the pro-Palestinian part mm -hmm. of the people that voted for Biden last time. And when you're talking about an election outcome that hinged on 20 to 40,000 votes, Biden could lose the election because of the pro-Palestinian segment. Well, he in, could lose the, the election for a lot of yeah. reasons. You know, yeah. there's, there's a lot of wedge issues that can be played there. But that's assuming if he lives that long. Not that I wish him dead by any means, but he is, he is uh, quite an aged gentleman at this point. Point. Well, the so, funny thing is Trump, which is another Trump, reason Trump's not getting you know anywhere near the laser beam of focus about his age, but he doesn't appear to have lived a particularly healthy life, but he's fairly aged himself. So this is the funny thing. I mean, the, you've seen polls out of the US where a bunch of the voters don't want to vote for either of the candidates because they'd like someone who isn't 
almost 80 well, or 80. Well, I think it'd be quite interesting if Nikki Haley became the Republican nominee as a sort of relatively young, energetic, new face in, in some ways, a, a woman, but coming from the right up against sort of a, a older establishment male on the left. And, you know, I think that would yes. really throw US politics yes. up in the air. Yes, well, for that to happen, Trump has to hit a brick wall because the party is his party now and they're going to elect him. She's got a share of the votes as a kind of protest against people that can't even hold their nose and vote for Trump. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, for for her to be the Bradbury of the US elections and skate through, Trump has to fall over. Mm -hmm. Right, so let's get away from that and let's get back to something really interesting. Why is it that the Future Fund, we find out, has invested in defence industry but the only place where it hasn't invested in defence industry is Australia. It's invested offshore and it's invested about $600 million. And then the second topic I'd, I'd like to talk about is, and why is it that in a time of great urgency and strategic uncertainty, the Defence Department can underspend its budget last year by $600 million, the same amount that the Future Fund has invested in every other defence industry except Australia's, why can defence underspend by $600 million and blow it off, saying, well, you know, we've got a big budget, we did pretty well? Leaving $600 million on the table wow. when Australian industry is crying out for any cash flow seems to me to be negligent, but in another way it's an opportunity. For all those people that say there's no money to fund any of this, well, if they stop leaving money on the table at the end of the financial year, there's a lot of money. Well, I think those things are unrelated in one way, but related in another. So if we go to the Future Fund, the people who run the Future Fund... Good people. Good people. Smart people. Yeah. Well, basically, I think they're managing our pension fund. So you know, hopefully they are not only good people, but smart people. And because they're managing our pension funds, they have an obligation to invest that money wisely. So they are looking at, out at all of the options they can invest money in. And guess what? They're looking at Australian defence industry and saying, that's not a good option. And why are they doing that? Well, because Australia, the Australian Department of Defence and the government don't back Australian defence industry. So it's, so it's not because Australian defence industry doesn't make good stuff. I mean, no, Australian defence companies are selling critical stuff yes, around the world and supporting Ukraine with amazing because stuff. because they are not, don't have good cash flow. Yes. You know, that the Australian government, Australian Defence Department, are not signing meaningful acquisition contracts with Australian defence industry. Well, that's because the department is leaving $600 million on Correct. the table. <laughs> Correct. So that's the link. Now, $600 million for Australian defence industry is serious money. So if you're a small company, a few million dollars a year can make the difference between keeping the lights on and not. A hundred million dollars could be the biggest contract you've ever had. And it might lead to growth as well. And it could actually d deliver real capability quite quickly. Mm. So the, the, I think this story about the Future Fund that was in the media recently is we shouldn't be blaming the Future Fund managers. We mm. should be saying, well, these are people with a duty a duty to get the best return on their investments. Yes. And they are just yes. saying there's no money to be well, made it's in interesting Australian defence the, the industry. Same, the same time that the Future Fund was investing this $600 million in every defence industry they could find except Australia's, luckily it wasn't North Korea, Iran, 
China or Russia's defence industry, I, I would say. So they're, they're, they're doing it in a legal way as well. But at the same time as, as they were doing this, a bunch of government ministers were meeting with super funds and saying, you really need to do the right thing by the country and invest in Australian defence industry. So, but their own government's future fund wasn't for all the reasons you're saying. Now, could I just draw out why, why the Defence Department's behaviour is a problem? And, you know, my version of what you're saying is the Defence Department is extraordinarily well-funded, $52.6 billion annual funding this year, but it's a it's an incredibly unreliable customer when it comes to anyone but the big foreign primes. So when when a future fund or a super fund looks at, will I take the risk of funding an Australian defence company? They say, but the prospects of them actually winning any contract with the Australian Defence Department are negligible. And because of that, there's too much risk. I'm happy to take risk as long as there's a possibility there's a contract Correct. at the end of it. Yes. So th- there's a number of, of factors here. One is sort of the cultural predisposition of defence not to back Australian companies. But the other one is sort of is the winner-take-all kind of approach in defence capability development. So let's say you're a, a tech company, you're inventing some cool widget. If you're a, an investor, you go, well, hmm, this is cool technology but it's applicable to a whole bunch of sectors. There's potentially a lot of customers out there. So if the agriculture industry is not that interested, well, there's other, the mining industry might be interested and there's a lot of players in the mining industry. So it's worth me taking some risk to back Or even power companies. I've been seeing great stories about US power companies using drones to inspect their power lines, inspect their towers. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I saw a story this week where, it, where they have drones that can actually lay new cables. They, they talk like tugs, aerial tugs, and they pull new power cables through instead of mm-hmm. the much more complicated mm-hmm. human-driven thing. So there's lots of alternative markets. And I think the point you'll make is but in the, the prospects market, of getting a contract with them are much better because the barriers to entry and doing business are lower and the customer is less capricious. Yes, but in the defence market, if defence is saying, well, we're going to buy one UAV... So go and compete, industry, but we're only going to pick one. Well, if you're an investor looking at that, you go, my chances of of success are very small. Yeah, because I've got 52 people competing, and one of them's the big guy, and Lockheed Martin's got a product. Why should I? Why should I put any of my venture capital into this Australian one? Because the odds of them winning are are tiny. So what would you do about that? So there's a a couple of things you can do to address this and there was a report came out last week great report that which um, we'll put a link to on our podcast and we, we had some involvement in in that essentially saying well you you actually need to back australian industry so there will be certain projects that you'll reserve for australian industry because they are strategically important they're ones where we need supply chain security so are projects that have to be developed by, delivered by Australian industry. Well, also on the basis that Australian industry can do these things, and we know that. So things like the consumables of conflict, uh, things like all kinds of drones, all kinds of uncrewed systems, yeah. the small, the smart, and the many is a sweet spot for what Australia That's can do. That's what Australian industry is really, really good at. And it competes around the world on those in that area and, in fact, exports in the defence and non-defence sectors around the world. Mm. The other thing you can do is pick several winners because in the smaller smart than the many, a successful product doesn't cost billions of dollars to design and put into service. So you could say, well, actually, in the drone space, we want 
a, a range of different a diversity of we them. want a, a yeah. diversity so we're going to pick several winners and it, so that way if you're thinking of investing you go well it's not one one Yes. Winner gets everything. Yeah, that's not uh, one winning lottery ticket. There are there are a few. Yeah. So that increases my my chances. Yeah. And then someone like the future fund might actually invest some of its money onshore. But the business case has to make sense, is the point. And and defense and the government get to create the conditions to help the business cases make sense. So rather than just yelling at super funds and criticizing the future fund, you've got to set the incentive structure for them. Well, see, you can yell at the super fund all you like, but the directors and managers of, of super funds are going, I actually have a duty <laughs> to to get a, a decent return on investment. If I keep making bad choices, either I'll lose my job or I'll go to jail. Yeah. That, by the way, does not apply to ministers or to defence officials. Yes, <laughs> so. yes. You're right. If they had the same accountability for performance, we would see much better performance and we probably would be seeing some turnover in the leadership. Now, we're sort of getting towards the end. We, we need to just do a little bit of a deep dive into these proposed export control laws because on our previous podcast, some of the reaction I had was, thank you, I hadn't understood all of this. Um, I think the, the big concept to me is Pillar 2 of AUKUS came about because the barriers to, uh, to entry into doing business with the Australian military, the US military and the UK military were very high. And the kinds of technologies that were all present out in the commercial world, in the agricultural sector, the mining sector, surveying, even the power companies that I mentioned, all of those technologies were not coming into the hands of the military. So regulation that protects stuff that is in defence and stops it getting out is really what this bill is all about. But pillar two is the opposite. The benefits are everywhere outside defence and they need to be brought in. So if you wanted to design something, you need to think about that. And the problem is it's designed around the other way. It's, it's saying everything, every piece of technology that defence has mustn't leach out. But Pillar 2 is all about benefits that are out everywhere else and need to be brought in. Well, the, the challenge, it seems to me, is that by implementing this new system, you are applying all of the kind of trade control restrictions that apply to, to military technology to everything else. Ooh. So so what's, what is behind this is that, so the three AUKUS countries are saying we want to lower barriers, so we'll remove trade controls. Between us. Between us. Uh, export trade controls between us. And so the US has said, well, we'll do that provided you set up a trade control system that looks a lot like ours. It right. doesn't you, have to be identical, but it has to look a lot like ours. So right. that's you, really you can, what this You can attach your tent to my tent, but it's got to look very like my tent. Correct. So, and, you know, so I've sort of looked at this, sort of swung backwards and forwards on it. And, you know, I read the impact statement that the government recently mm -hmm. released that went through and looked at the costs and benefits of this. And I was sort of going through it going, well, maybe that doesn't sound too bad. But then there are a lot of red flag. The mm. first red flag, by the way, are the numbers. You know, in all yes. of these de defence reports, the numbers are a total baloney, I guess what I would say. So the, the minister put out a media release saying our exports every year are eight to nine billion and five of that goes to the AUKUS This is defence exports we're talking yes. about. There yeah. is no evidence to support no. that in whatsoever. In fact, defence officials testified in the Senate just recently in painstaking detail about they deliberately don't have any data. The system is deliberately designed not to collect data about right. actual exports. So if if they were right then, 
it's mystifying that there can now be this figure of eight to nine billion. Where does it come from? Yeah, to me, well, it's just vaporware. Well, the defence export strategy that came out in 2018 estimated our export defence exports every year at 1.5 to 2.5 billion. And now apparently it's eight or nine. Yeah. Hmm. Where that eight or nine figure comes from, actually, is from export applications that people submit to the Defence Export Controls Office, and they have to self-assess a value. Which I remember defence officials explaining in quite withering condescension to our elected senators uh, that this had no bearing on the value of the actual export or whether it actually occurred. Correct. If if you look at the last eight years, the average value has sort of been between three and a half and four billion dollars a year. So defence has picked a figure twice. Well, I I thought it was remarkable in that media release that it was was headlined something like ITAR's reform or export control unlocks unlocking $5 billion worth of exports. And then in the short half page of the media release, it contradicted itself because it said that that was a number apparently was going to our AUKUS partners that was happening already. So I don't know how it was being unlocked. It already seemed to be quite unlocked. Well, yeah, so the impact statement does come up with an, a benefit number. So it says over the next 10 years, if this legislation goes through, there'll be a, a benefit of a bit over $600 million. $614 million, wasn't it? That was yeah. in the press release uh, as well. There will be a cost of $90 billion of additional process inside the department. So so a net benefit overall of about $500 million. But How did it deal with the costs of compliance across medium and small Australian companies and any companies that aren't currently well, doing business with defence but get caught up in this? There's a very, there is a small cost associated with that. So according to their analysis, there will be a cost, but it's quite small. What I find quite interesting is that the big benefit number of about $600 million a year, you go, well, what is that? Actually, that wasn't a year. That was over 10 years. Oh, 10 years, yes. So that's so about $60, 60 million dollars a year is the enormous benefit so, that we're going to get out of this. So the benefit is actually the cost of capital uh, incurred by Australian companies when they import things from America, but that import is held up and has to go through the US trade control system. Right. So let's say I buy $100 million worth of stuff, but Mm -hmm. then it sits there in America in a warehouse. Can't be shipped over here. While the exporter gets a US export control While the State Department does its processing. Yes. Right. So... That actually is not a direct benefit of this legislation. That's if the we pass this legislation and the US says, good, ticks the box, we're happy, so we'll pass yeah, our own They, they can open the, the side flap of their tent and let our extension tent be, yes. be attached. But the, the, the impact statement doesn't actually put any numbers around broader creation of this ecosystem where we're all happily interacting This is, yeah, the, the thousand flowers blooming, you know, defence trade no. between the AUKUS partners just skyrocketing no, because so, of this so fantastic there's, there's result. no figure in there. Yeah. But I think that the thing of real concern... D- sorry, just on that, don't... Yeah. Isn't it normal that there would be an economic benefit identified if there was a proper basis to estimate one? So the fact that there is no estimate of an increased business between US, Australian and UK defence companies because of this tells me even the most creative official could not find a credible way of putting a number there. Well, I think it is a creative consultant. I mean, the the report 
doesn't identify who did it other than the Australian government. Well, I hope it's not one of the big four. Well, I don't know. There's no name on it, but, I mean, it's actually, it looks very nice, much nicer than anything Defence ever would have done in-house. Now, I know you have gone to the horrible, painstaking trouble of drilling into the analysis, Mm. and you've looked at some of the uh, Defence Department released case studies, which I think are designed to show, see, there's no problem here. Could you take me through well, one of those? Yeah, this is, I think, is the area where, you know, I have concern and I would urge Australian companies and universities to really sort of Drilling. dig into this. And this legislation is going to the Senate. It's going to be reviewed by the Senate. I mean, it's going to be passed. Both major parties support AUKUS. And, you know, this is another example of the AUKUS behemoth lumbering along crushing everything in its path, saying Mm. resistance is futile. It's the Alliance autopilot, isn't it? And there is a lack of critical analysis by the major parties of defence issues, and it's because they both feel they've got to keep signing up to bipartisanship all the time. And what that means is a complete lack of scrutiny scrutiny of the defence organisation. So it will go through, but I think there is room... There is a possibility of public saying, well, we're concerned about X, Y, and Z, and so can we make sure that that is dealt with in the, the legislation? Mm. So, so one people of the, can make submissions to this inquiry. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things that jumped out at me is there are various what they call vignettes up the back of the impact statement saying how this will work in practice. And reading the, the, the impact statement going, well, that doesn't sound too bad, that doesn't sound too bad. But when you hit the vignettes, you start going, that sounds really bad. Mm. So, for example... Um, One of the vignettes says, you know, imagine a small local Australian business that produces dual-use goods that are listed in the DSGL. So that's the the, the, the 300 pages of dual-use items that are are controlled. Yeah, it reminds me of the Code Napoleon, you know, this giant body of law. And that list just gets bigger and bigger. It is a very long list. So so it produces dual-use goods on that list but sells them within Australia. Mm -hmm. And it says they don't rely on any imported control technology so Mm -hmm. it's all australian technology they have not exported their products before and they have no plans to do so right so despite that so they're not tapping into an import market or an export market so it's the league of gentlemen again it's local goods for local people they will still need to get a permit to get an exemption for any of their employees who are not on the the so-called FCL list. So that's the foreign countries list and nationals on that list uh, essentially don't need permits. Right. And so that would be what, NATO yeah. countries, New Zealand, Japan pretty much. Yeah, South Korea, I presume. Oh, I don't believe South Korea. South Korea's not on the I list. I don't believe so off the top of my so head. So India? India is definitely not on it. Right. Now, so and of a course, quad China partner. is not on it. <laughs> but, a, but a quad partner country is not on it. Correct. So, and maybe, yeah, okay. Yeah. So, and I, you know, if you're a, a, a lab, a research lab in Australian University, probably pretty hard to find graduate students without drawing on India. Particularly if you can't go to China, which is probably a good thing. Which is a good thing. Mm. You know. So now the the vignette doesn't say you won't get a permit, but it yes. just means that if you want to employ these people, you you are going to need a permit. It's a similar story for laboratories. Plus, there is a sort of version of the ITAR, the so-called ITAR taint in this, and that is if an Australian company gets a permit to export, if the recipient company in another country then wants to re-export, the Australian company has to reapply for another permit to yes. enable 
that export. Yeah, because they're pretty much, they're attached to the whole supply chain of export, aren't they? Wherever it propagates after it leaves them, there's still responsibility sheeted back home here. So so when we first uh, covered this two weeks ago, what drew our attention to it was Bill Greenwald, so a former defence US defence official who really understands these issues, Mm. he was very concerned and had some quite extreme statements about, Mm. you know, we're giving up our sovereignty. And I I don't want to necessarily go that far, but I'd say I think there are real concerns here because some, I think so far on what I've seen, some of the worst aspects of the US system around ITAR, we do seem to be adopting in some form. Yes, yes. And I just think as far as Pillar 2 goes... Uh, it is the opposite to what we need because all those benefits need to come into defence. It's not a matter of putting a fence around to stop the benefits leeching out of defence. That, that to me, yeah. is the conceptual problem. Now, I, I don't think we want to stop it, but I do think stakeholders should be engaged on this and try and make sure that potential worst-case elements don't get put into legislation. Well, I'd say that's right. But the other thing is anyone who thinks this is a solution for Pillar 2 of AUKUS is just completely out of touch. There needs to be an entirely different thing done to lower the barriers to bring technologies that aren't crazy emerging things in labs. They're applied technologies, like these power companies using drones to tow new power lines. Uh, Those benefits need to be brought into defence, and this regulation does nothing to help that. I think this will impact companies that have never even heard of AUKUS. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so yes. all of a sudden, you're an Australian company. You're not interested in defence exports. Uh, you're not. You've never heard of AUKUS. This is now interested in you. Yes. Yes. And you need to know what's on that 300-page list. Yeah. Well, Marcus, we're out of time. Fantastic to talk with you. Don't know if we'll get another episode in before Christmas, particularly as I'll be so busy sewing t-shirts and putting mugs in baking kilns. But. Wonderful to talk with you again. I think, you, you know, your, your little screen printing business out in the garage is, is going to be working overtime, I think. More merch. More merch. Thanks, Marcus.